Hello and welcome to the third National Academic Integrity Network podcast. I'm Dr. Yvonne Kavanagh, the Assistant Registrar in the Southeast Technological University, and I'm also privileged to be a member of the National Academic Integrity Network Steering Group. The National Academic Integrity Network is a peer-driven network established in November 2019 by QQI. The network is focused on actively supporting higher education institutions to effectively engage with the challenges presented by academic misconduct, embed a culture of academic integrity among providers, develop national resources and tools for providers to address the challenges presented by academic misconduct. The network comprises membership of all public higher education institutions, universities, institutes of technology, as well as private independent providers, students and student representatives from the Union of Students of Ireland. The work of the network is coordinated and supported by QQI. Today, I have the pleasure to talk to Professor Sarah Eaton, who we are delighted to welcome to Ireland. Sarah joins us on our way back from being a speaker in the ENAI Researchers Summer School in Turkey. So welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much. Dr. Eaton is an Associate Professor at the University of Calgary, Canada, where she also serves as the University's inaugural education leader in residence on academic integrity. An award-winning educator and researcher, Sarah's work focuses on academic integrity in higher education. Sarah serves as the Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of, Ac of Educational Integrity. Um, her academic research can be found at the British Journal of Educational Research, Educational Policy, and the Journal of Academic Ac Ethics, yeah. and the Journal of Academic Ethics, among other places. She is a member of the Committee for Publication Ethics Council. Dr. Eaton is the co-founding member of the Alberta Council on Academic Integrity in Canada and co-chair of the Council's Contract Cheating Working Group. Professor Eaton is a member of the European Network for Academic Integrity Policy Working Group and leads national policy research in Canada focusing on contract cheating and academic integrity. And Professor Eaton, congratulations on the publication of the Academic Integrity in Canada book this March, which you co-edited with Julia Hutchington, Julia Christensen, Christensen Hughes. Christensen Hughes. Julia Christensen Hughes. And uh, we're going to welcome your new book soon, I know, on contract cheating in higher education. Also, um, I would just like to say that uh, we really welcome you. So welcome, Sarah. And I hope you enjoyed your visit and we're delighted that you could join us today. Thanks so much. It's great to be here with you. Sorry, page two. Sarah, you're welcome to the podcast, and I'll start with an easy question. In your opinion, what is the relevance of academic integrity to higher education? You said you were going to start with an easy question. Oh, wow. That, that's a fantastic question. I mean, I think in part it's to ensure that the credentials that we award actually reflect student, student learning, right? Uh, so we want to ensure that there's integrity in student learning, in teaching, in assessment, and all aspects of higher education because effectively academic integrity is an indicator of quality assurance in education. Thank you for that. And as you said, it is an indicator of quality assurance in action, really. And I just want to probe a little deeper into how you became such a champion for academic integrity in Canada and where you, how you came to this position. 
It was accidental. Um, I was working on an institutional report on academic integrity with a now retired vice provost of teaching and learning at our University of Calgary. And um, as I was doing that report, this was in 2015, I realized that there had been a gap in research in academic integrity in Canada. And I said to her, uh, her name was Dr. Lynn Taylor. I said, Lynn, no one's doing this research in Canada. Someone's got to research this. And she said, I know, and I'm retiring. And conveniently, around the same time, I was interviewing for a research job in the, in the then Faculty of Education, and uh, I got the job. The Associate Dean of Research sat me down, wagged her finger at me, and said, you need a research program, and it needs to be something relevant, timely, and that you can do for the rest of your career. And I thought, conveniently, academic integrity in Canada seems to be available. So um, that's what I started to research, and it's just been a passion ever since. That's fantastic, and it was just nice that you've become this champion and you're recognized across the globe. So as somebody involved in the area and seeing the development of academic integrity across Canada, what would you like to see happening in terms of cooperation across the globe? Um, there's so much opportunity for collaboration in various ways, whether it's for research or knowledge sharing, uh, and also for quality assurance. I think that there's lots of opportunities for individuals organizations and networks to learn from and with one another about current practices, what's working, what doesn't work, what are the wicked questions that we can be tackling, how do we do that together. I think there's so many complex issues, we can't tackle them alone. Uh, and when we work together, we're better and stronger. Even just knowledge sharing can be so fulfilling and also help us to identify, okay, what do we need to be doing in our own area and how can we learn from others to do it better. Brilliant, and I noticed there you said that we could work together and um, what approach has been taken in Canada, shall we say, to ensuring academic integrity and investing in academic integrity mm -hmm. working together? Uh, yeah, it's interesting that you say that. There's a now retired professor from the University of Toronto who says that higher education in Canada defies the rules of organizational um, uh, uh, norms and, and development, if you will, and that it's completely decentralized, it shouldn't work, and yet somehow it does work. And I think this also characterizes our approach to academic integrity because we have a decentralized higher education system, a decentralized quality assurance uh, system. Uh, many institutions in Canada are connected with the International Centre for Academic Integrity, many are becoming involved with the European Network for Academic Integrity, um, and we basically learn to cooperate because our country is huge, and so none of us have expertise alone in our cities, or we don't have sufficient expertise. The only way that we can build our knowledge and our capacity is by working together. So I think actually COVID's been uh, an enabler of that because we've been connected via Zoom, we're now all comfortable meeting via Zoom, and it's really helped us, I think, to catalyze our national conversations about what we can do. We're no longer only reliant on meeting once a year at a conference, for example. Uh, we have provincial councils now, uh, to much like the National Academic Integrity Network in Ireland, but at a provincial level to keep us connected. So I think we've been doing some good work uh, to build our community. Great. And is that enabling you to leverage funding at a national level or at a local level? Where is the funding actually coming to forward the conversation and to get those resources developed and enabled? This is something we could in general do better with, I think. I think institutions are starting to invest some resources around this. Some institutions, such as our uh, University of Calgary, have teaching and learning grants 
where they will fund research projects through teaching and learning. Uh, and our university is not the only one. There are other universities that also have grants. And then I have to give a shout out to my colleague, Dr. Martine Peters uh, at the University of Quebec, Onutawe, who secured a national level grant to study plagiarism and has engaged partners around the world to do that work. Yeah, um, and that's the university partnership on the prevention of plagiarism. I'm uh, delighted to be part of that project with her. And I think it's the largest grant ever in the world to tackle an academic integrity project, just shy of 2.5 million Canadian dollars. Um, and so we're working now on gathering data uh, for that project. And uh, it's a seven-year project, and it's absolutely massive. This will be supporting knowledge gathering, not only in Canada, but also around the world about current understanding of plagiarism from a teaching and learning perspective, which will help to inform better practices for ensuring students are learning with integrity, not only in Canada, but also other countries. That's amazing, and that's fantastic that you've gotten that level of government investment in this area and that level of interest in actually funding projects at, at such a high level of um, investment. Um, I was just thinking then, what would you say to the leaders today in higher education in Ireland regarding investment in this area? Absolutely, academic integrity requires a commitment, financial commitment, that's long-term. It's one thing to fund short-term projects, but ultimately that's not sustainable. Academic integrity work is complex work. These are wicked problems that are not solved short-term. This requires ongoing and sustained funding for research and also operations. And I've said to you know people in my own country and other countries as well, as long as the, the funding is only from special projects, it's not sustainable. Academic integrity funding needs to be embedded into budgets at the operational level uh, as well as ongoing research commitment. Great, and you speak about wicked projects, and I know you were talking today especially about transdisciplinary projects. So where do you see this fitting, shall we say, within the organisation and within higher education, and how do you actually enable that conversation to happen at an institutional level in Canada? Mm, this, this is an excellent question. You know, I think for a long time, academic integrity has been seen only as a matter of student conduct and so we're starting to push the boundaries beyond that and look at this as academic integrity uh, as ethics within the academy so as applying not only to student learning but also ethical teaching ethical assessment transparency and ethics in higher education leadership uh, publication ethics research integrity all of these things can come under the umbrella of academic integrity that's fantastic and now we look at it sometimes too from a student perspective and through a student lens and I know you had a quote today uh, that from a leading academic saying that universities set the conditions which facilitates and encourages contract cheating. Could you unpack that statement and just give us a little bit of information around that? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I can say that that uh, was a conclusion of a book chapter based on a study that I conducted with my colleagues Brenda Stays and Josh Sealand that will be coming out in the Contract Cheating uh, book and it's an edited volume, forthcoming, uh, co-edited with Guy Curtis, Joe Clare and Kiata Rundle in Australia along with Brenda Stays and Josh Sealand in Canada. We conducted an analysis of narratives of people who had supplied services to the contract cheating industry dating back to 1939. And it was either their stories as they told it themselves or as they recounted it to, say, a reporter. 
um, or an investigative journalist. And we found uh, consistently through our qualitative analysis of these narratives that the individual suppliers said that they can succeed in their field because higher education is setting the conditions for contract cheating to be perpetuated. In other words, uh, they're saying that, you know, professors who um, set assignments that are not meaningful to students, students who are overworked, um, and then students who don't have time to complete all of their assignments, along with other factors, are just a few of the conditions that mean that students will turn to contract cheating suppliers rather than doing the work themselves. This was consistently articulated from suppliers from Canada, the US, the UK, Asia, and other places, and Africa. Uh, and, and this was fascinating for us because so long the conversation has been about contract cheating suppliers and students. You know, and they're like the only two factors in the equation. And now I think we need to start asking ourselves, what are universities doing individually? And what is the higher education sector doing that is allowing the contract cheating industry to proliferate? Those are questions we don't have answers to, but they're important questions to ask. Definitely, yes. And um, how would you suggest we enhance the message that learning is the journey, if you like, and that success in assessment should be evidence of success rather than an obstacle and viewed in that vision or that lens? Mm -hmm. Oh gosh, that's a tough question. I don't think there's an easy answer to it, but I mean, I'll often say to my students when I start teaching a course, look, you're here to learn and I'm here to teach you. And if you're not learning, I'm not doing my job. Uh, and that kind of opens a door to a conversation about academic integrity at the beginning of a semester, uh, in which I say to students, look, if you're caught between a rock and a hard place of, you know, um, asking me for an extension on your assignment or turning to an outside third third party supplier, then talk to me and have a conversation with me because I want to be here to support your learning. We talk about supporting students learning, them being on a learning journey, and that their um, degree, their parchment at the end of it is really just an indicator of what their learning is. It shouldn't just be a transaction. And we also talk to them about the relationships that they make while they're at our institutions that I say to my students, in some cases, the classes you take are your job interviews because you'll be asking those professors for reference letters and establishing their relationships with those profs can help them advance in the careers that they want to pursue. Yeah, that's a very interesting way of putting it and a way of actually ensuring that the students understand exactly where you're coming from. And then on the other side, sometimes we get this kind of rhetoric about people not actually recording or reporting incidences of academic integrity. And I know that you said today as well that lack of, lack of recording is, does not equal to a lack of incidents. And I'm just wondering, how do you overcome that in Canada and how do you approach that narrative? One of the ways I think we've been able to open that conversation is making parallels between reporting of academic misconduct and reporting of, for example, domestic violence. And for example, with our own police services, they'll, they'll encourage people to report and they say a lack of reporting doesn't mean that it's not happening. Uh, and they're actually, our police services are happy when they have increases in reporting for domestic violence because it means people feel safe reporting they know how to report uh, and that they understand that there's not going to be any repercussions to them for, for doing that. Um, and so we're having these important conversations now about how um, a lack of reporting or a lack of data in reports doesn't mean that it's not happening uh, and that it's important to let people know 
know, one, how, are the, how to report, that the mechanisms for reporting should be easy and straightforward, and that there's no punitive consequences to those who report. And for academic staff and teaching staff, that this is part of their job. Um, I say to my students, I will do everything in my power to educate you about academic integrity, but if there's a violation, it is part of my professional duty to report it, so you can expect that to happen. And I frame it that way, I don't use a threatening tone, I simply present it as one of my instructional responsibilities, and so they understand that if it happens, I'm going to do my job. Great. And as you say, again, another step forward on the reporting is once you report, that's not necessarily in a punitive way. It is more in a supportive way. And it's only when we get to the far levels and deep into, you know, people actually um, successively uh, being guilty of academic misconduct and successively being guilty of plagiarism that we get to the punitive side. But how do you explain the restorative practice that you're promoting in, in Canada in academic integrity? Mm -hmm. um. So here I've got to give a shout out to my colleagues at McEwen University, Paul Sopchak, Laura Brunner, uh, Kevin Hood, who've done great work at that particular university of using restorative practices as the first line of response when there's an academic misconduct. And so looking at restorative practices as a way of um, repairing harm in the community um, and letting students understand the impact of an academic misconduct and what that means, it doesn't work in all cases. There has to be um, an uh, an ability to accept responsibility and a willingness to accept responsibility for the transgression. And if students have demonstrated that willingness and the professors have also demonstrated the willingness to participate in a restorative resolution, that then they can come together and help uh, to understand how restorative justice can play a role that can help students um, repair the harm, learn from the experience and also stay members of their learning community because we want to keep these relationships with our students um, and I think it's also rooted in an ethic of care. If we tell students that they're part of our learning communities, this is one way to help them stay in. Whereas traditional punitive approaches um, ultimately can result in an expulsion from the institution or the community, whereas the purpose of restorative practices is to keep students in, not to get them out. Um, and so starting with those different approaches, it takes a lot more work, but in the end, I think it can be worth it for the students because they understand the impact of their choices and their behavior, and they will act with intentionality in a different way rather than thinking, for example, that this is a victimless crime. Excellent, yes, and you talk about there the restorative practice taking more time than the traditional methodologies and how do you support staff in the case of where they have reported an incident and how does is that brought forward, shall we say, so that they are not impacted in a time way rather than they are supportive for the students? How do you actually work through that? Um, well, we're not doing this at our university yet, though I hope it's something we will do in the future. But um, speaking to what you know, colleagues at McEwen University have reported to us, they have members of staff trained in how to hold restorative conferences. They've invested time. Uh, I think they have at least 50 members of academic and professional staff trained in how to hold these conferences. Um, so it's not just all the responsibility of one or two people. They have a critical mass of people in whom they have invested with ongoing training um, 
um, and professional development to help them understand how to implement this uh, response to an academic misconduct, but really it's about investing in the people and thinking of this as a community responsibility. Excellent. That sounds like a really good approach and kind of you're keeping the students in the community. And if I come back from that now and take a totally different view of what we're doing and uh, something you spoke about today was the intersection of artificial intelligence and academic integrity. And you mentioned that the this term of academic intelligence student monitoring. Could you expand on what exactly that means and how you actually work with it or what exactly is involved in this area. Yeah, so some of this knowledge comes to me secondhand um, because we have privacy laws in Canada that would prevent aggressive surveillance of students on our campuses. Um, I understand from some of my colleagues who work in the United States that surveilling students is quite common on their campuses, tracking their movement around campus, including things such as are students going to particular classes. If they're not going to class, they can be flagged, for example, and brought in for an advising appointment um, and asked sort of what's going on and that this is a form of I think it's called assertive advising I don't recall the exact term I mean for me it's kind of invasive the way that students are surveilled on their campuses um, and uh, and then that is then used to inform advising practices I think it's an indicator of how um, you know big data surveillance are coming together um, and uh, to supposedly help students but you know, I think that there's some ethical issues around that um, that we haven't delved into very much in, in Canada. As I said, I think our privacy laws would prohibit some of that. Um, but it's it's interesting to watch it from the outside in the United States. As it just seems to be a matter of course there that students are surveilled as part of their daily school activities. Definitely using your phone to track your student is quite an interesting concept and being able to know if they're in the coffee shop or if they're in the lecture hall or where they actually are. It certainly brings a new meaning to engaging with students and engagement for students and I think our privacy laws would probably prohibit that too. Um, I'm just coming back to Ireland again and just going to ask you how do you see the academic integrity community across higher education in Ireland being developed? What would you think our next steps? Where do you see us going? Uh, well, I said it before and I'll say it again. I really think that Ireland has become a global leader in academic integrity in so many ways, from things like the establishment of NAIN to the development of the common lexicon of academic integrity. Really, these things are standing as exemplars of excellence for other countries to follow. I mean, having said that, every country can look to the next stage and what does that look like, right? And looking in from the outside, I mean, a couple of things I think could be really exciting for Ireland would be things, for example, of a funding of a national research agenda around academic integrity, right? Looking, linking um, multi-institutional projects um, and, and also connecting Ireland with other um, universities and outside of Ireland as well. So projects that would allow Ireland to collaborate, for example, with Canada, uh, with Europe. Uh, and then I think, you know, to see Ireland being able to lead some of those projects as well could be really exciting. So I honestly, I think the next step um, is for a little bit more government support, to be honest, to fund um, fund these national level collaborations. Research is a is a easy, not easy, and obvious way to fund projects, but it doesn't all have to be theoretical projects. It can also look into teaching and learning, policy development, assessment. I mean, these are exciting, practical, relevant uh, things for all of higher education with academic integrity simply being a lever to do that work. 
Brilliant, yes, I see in your book, um, Academic Integrity in Canada, you have contributions from across KG. You're not just looking at the academic contributions, even though you've produced an academic volume, you're looking at the contributions from professional support service staff, from students, and how did you get people involved in that conversation? Oh, mostly I twisted their arms. Um, <laughs> but I mean, this is one of the beautiful things about academic integrity. It can't only be owned by academics. I mean, I, you know, Erica Morris, Jude Carroll, Tracy Bertag, people like that and others have commented time and time again how academic integrity requires a multi-stakeholder approach, right? So we need to ask ourselves, who are those stakeholders? So students and teachers, educators are the obvious ones, but beyond that, members of professional staff, the registrarial staff, student services, the library, people who work in writing centers, all of these people are invested in the institution and invested in student learning, so they need to be part of those conversations around academic integrity. For example, I often think about libraries as being a hub for academic integrity because they're intellectually agnostic. They don't just belong to one discipline. Students can go and ask questions and not be afraid. There's also less power differential when students can go to, a, say, a student affairs office or a library. So all of these different stakeholders are important people and uh, departments and units on our campuses to engage in the academic integrity conversation. And when we did our book on academic integrity in Canada, we intentionally included people who didn't have faculty roles or academic or researcher positions because we wanted to ensure that members of professional staff were included in the conversation. So you're looking at this more or less like health and safety. It is our health and safety, if you like. It is that it's everybody's business. It's not just the permit of a few people such as students or such as the academics. It has to be a buy-in from everyone across the institutions. Yes, I like that approach. And I was just wondering, one last question, and this is a very global one. If you had a chance to make one change on how we approach academic integrity, what would you do? Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> just one change. Hmm. Um, I mean, I, th I think for me it would be expanding the definition of academic integrity beyond student conduct and seeing this holistically, right? If the purpose of education, whether it's K-12 or higher education or both, is to produce ethical citizens of thinking of academic integrity as a field of applied ethics in educational contexts, uh, and that really this is about our students becoming ethical citizens, I think that would be a key message. I'm not sure it's a change, but I think it's a key message we could continue to focus on. Definitely, so we're developing the whole person rather than just their interest in particular areas of academia. I think that would be a really nice one actually. It's a nice wording to finish on too, I think, and I just would like to thank you so much for giving your time today, Professor Eden, and for actually being part of this third National Academic Integrity Network podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks. My pleasure. Sarah, I'm just going to ask you as well about the teacher education and where you see that fitting into the whole conversation on academic integrity and what part does it play in actually developing academic integrity through educating our teachers? Mm, uh, that's a brilliant question. I'm so glad you asked me. Thank you. You know, so often we have this chicken and egg conversation about um, academic integrity needs to start in the in the earlier grades, in elementary school or secondary school, before students reach the higher education institutions. And yet, the teachers in those K-12 contexts are not 
train in how to incorporate academic integrity education or ethics education into the curriculum. Um, and so I think actually the place to start is in higher education, specifically in teacher training, so that when we're teaching teachers how to incorporate ethics education into the curriculum, even if it's not part of the formal curriculum, we can uh, engage in ethics education as part of a hidden curriculum. That's the place to do it, I think. And uh, I'll give a little plug for a forthcoming book co-edited with Dr. Zina Reza, uh, Zina Reza Khan uh, from the University of Wollongong in Dubai, uh, and it has contributions uh, from all over the world on how to embed academic integrity and ethics education into pre-service teacher education because there hadn't been a book on that and we really felt that that was an important piece of the conversation that needs to be amplified. Brilliant, thank you. Thanks.